Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show. Today's guest is Carolyn Fitzgibbon, an occupational therapist who has worked in mental health and disability for over 20 years. She has found it useful to incorporate knowledge on sensory processing and sensory modulations into her work with individuals and organizations and also providing training. Carolyn works at Sensory Modulation Brisbane with Julio Sullivan, and they have co-authored the Sensory Modulation Resource Manual. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show, where we discuss tips, strategies, struggles, triumphs, and success stories related to borderline personality disorder. Here is your host, Faye Green. How would you describe sensory modulation? What is it? Um, so we simplify it as being um, changing how you feel through using your senses. So it's basically using sensory input. So if you, you know, if you feel calm going to the beach, then um, we would say, you know, you've, if you've gone to the beach and you go in the water and then you sort of start to sort of re- feel relaxed, that you've used that sensory input to change how you feel. And so you can use it sort of throughout the day. So, you know, if you have, you know, if you have like the right breakfast and the showers, just the right temperature and you know, all the sort of sensory input that we have throughout the day, we're sort of often seeking for it to be just right for us. And that sort of really varies from person to person. So I guess sensory modulation is is that matching of, you know, how you have your breakfast and what job you do and what you like to do on your holidays and what you like to do with leisure, you know, because even exercise, some people don't like to sweat a lot or some people don't like the sound of a gym. And so for some people, they might be like, oh, no, I don't like exercise. But then if you go, well, you know, if you did it, you know, in a really air conditioned room and you were stretching and they're like, oh, no, I'd love that. So I think all of these things are kind of a lot of people do naturally. But what we're doing with sensory modulation is we're bringing it to the forefront and we're thinking about it more and we're thinking about how it might be able to help us with other things that are going on um, in terms of, you know, mental health symptoms or um, other sort of difficulties that people might be having in their daily lives so even taking a shower would be sensory modulation absolutely yeah and taking a shower can be something that can be sensory input that really works for someone like someone might be like oh wow you know shower's my happy place I get in there and I'm steaming and I feel so (laughs) relaxed and someone else is like oh my god I'm so scared to get into a shower we have to kind of like work out what's going on for each of the different people and how can we sort of work to get clean in a way that works for the individual wow so so you match the tasks of the individual not the individual to the task yes exactly exactly so this is all about sensory processing is that it um so it's to do with i guess we normally say it's to do with sensory processing um and your um your past history and what you like as well. So the sensory processing part is each of us have um, a way of processing sensory input. So for example, someone might be sensitive to sounds or they might seek a lot of sounds out or they might miss some sounds. And then we can go on to smell. So someone might be the first person to smell something and they might get overwhelmed with smell or they might be the last person to smell things or a whole range in between. So each of us have this like beautiful, unique combination of sensory processing that makes us who we are. But often people don't think about it. They kind of feel like 
we're all sort of going around the world like the tv is the same level of sound for everybody but actually some people will find it too loud some people will find it too quiet you know some people won't be able to stand the sound of it you know there's a lot of sort of variation with that and when people have positive or negative memories that's also another layer so for example uh, with smells someone might smell something like for me um, if I smell mandarin, it reminds me of my grandmother used to make these little cupcakes with mandarin um, on top of it. And um, so when I smell mandarin, I think of my grandmother. Um, but for mm -hmm. someone else, they might smell mandarin and think of something horrible that happened, you know. So all of those sorts of things come into it as well. It's interesting because I know a lot of people. I mean, most people that I know like to be around. They don't like it when it's really quiet. So it's either listening to music, turning on a TV. And for me, yep. I love the quiet. It's not yep. that music is going to annoy me too much, but if I could choose, I love the quiet. Yeah. And I always think, why? Like, why am I so different than most people? I prefer no music. And I'm, not, I'm okay with being with my thoughts in my head. You know, like, I'm not running away from myself and my thoughts. I don't know if it's tied to anything in the past or growing up or I have no idea. It's just... I've realized that I'm very different when it comes to sound because if I live on my own, I know a lot of people that live on their own turn the TV on just to feel like they're not alone, like there's something yeah. else going on. And for me, it's like, just turn that TV off. I want quiet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Well, we, we find quite a lot of people like quiet as well. Like I guess it sort of depends on who you hang around with. That's you know, true. But yeah, you know, if you, if you hang around a bunch of musos, then they'll have – music on all the time, you know, and then someone else likes quiet. But I think it really comes into like sleeping, you know, like some people really need quiet to sleep. Like, do you need quiet to sleep as well? I used to need it a lot more than I need a quiet, but if I'm really tired, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be yeah. sleeping. Um, when I was younger, yeah, I needed it to be quiet. Um, I need to be pitch black, like super dark in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's, well, that's just right, though. Like, but that, I guess those are the kind of questions we ask with sensory modulation. Is like, you mm -hmm. know, what you know, what's your ideal kind of sleeping environment, and are you in that environment at the moment? You know, because someone can be like, you know, living somewhere where the light's shining in their room, and no matter what they've done, they can't screen it off, and they're living in a place that actually isn't ever going to be quiet, and so. How can they move or how can they mask those sounds? What can we do in terms of um, this, like these little um, headbands that you can get that you can sleep on, sleep with, or you can put like white noise machines on, or can we look at like how to kind of make it a bit quieter for some people? Or for other people, it's like what layers of sound would help you to sleep? Mm, you know? I see. So, yeah, yeah. And so I think it's the sort of, it's that tailoring to the individual that's that's really lovely because you're getting to know the person and like what works for you and you're the expert in what works for you, you know. So we've got this kind of menu here of options, but you're the one kind of going, oh, that's the one for me because you know yourself the most, you know. So it's basically making your life the most productive and the most comfortable for you, I guess. What works best for you. Yeah. Hmm. You know, so it's like concentrating as well, like someone can – um, when they're like trying to study, they might like music on and someone else needs quiet, you know. It's That's all of those true. things. It's like what works the best for you with with your life and what do you need? And I think it's good to kind of like look at that individualization because people can kind of get really definite, particularly when you're living with other people of like, oh, well, 
this is the right way to have this the room or this is this is what you do on holidays and you know having that kind of match can be either work really well or not work well like if one person's like I want to lie on the beach the other person's like I want to go bungee jumping and it's just like <laughs> you know it's like how do you how do you have a holiday together and if you know well it's it's different sensory needs then you can go all right well Tuesday why don't you lie on the beach and I'll go bungee jumping rather than kind of feeling like oh well what kind of a boring person are you who wants to lie on the beach or what kind of a freak are you that's going to jump out of you know jump off a cliff you know like you can you can kind of get a bit sort of judgy um, if you don't kind of understand that it's just that people have unique sensory processing differences they have different um, life experiences and it's just about finding what works for the individual and then being able to kind of, you know, navigate that with other people as well. Bringing up vacation holidays, that's pretty interesting because I, at one point I stopped going on holidays with friends because of that. I have a very yeah. different way. When they go somewhere, they have the schedule. We'll do this, 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 and this today. We'll go from here, then we'll go here, and then we'll get this. And for me, it's like, uh-uh-uh, like I want, I'm, I'm away, I'm just relaxing. I don't want to be on a rigid schedule. I yeah. want to know what there is to do in this city, in this place that I'm vi visiting, but I want to have the freedom. And I, at one point, I just stopped going on holidays with my friends. I couldn't. Their way of traveling was so different than mine. And I remember they were so upset and I, I just, it just didn't work for me. I never yeah. thought of saying, okay, let's see what we can do to work it out. You like the rigid schedule. And I'm like, mm -mm -mm. I just want to be able to you know, sleep in. And if I decide to go here or there, it's change it a bit. And for me, I, I lost out on a lot because of it. Cause I said, yeah. I'm not going. And yeah. honestly, I kind of regret it because um, there were so many places that they went to like different vacations that I would have loved to have been a part of, but I never thought of yeah. saying, okay, let's see how we can make it work. For me, it was your method of traveling does not work for me. So I can't join you. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think when it comes to sensory input, some people feel really um, nourished by having a, a schedule or knowing what the sensory input is going to be like. So uh, for some people, it's like, okay, you know, I want to go out for dinner. I want to get my favorite soup at the Vietnamese restaurant. It's going to taste like this. When I go out, you know, if this isn't me, but if if they want to sort of have exactly that, they want to go to their restaurant, sit in probably their favorite chair have their favourite soup, and then they feel like, oh, this is a peak sensory experience for me, you know. And someone else is like, oh, I want to go to a different restaurant and I want to try, look at the menu and try something different. So one would be the person sort of different, we would call more of a sensory seeker, and then mm -hmm. the person who's sort of liking the same things might be sensitive. So, for example, they might actually be tasting a whole lot of the flavours in that soup. They might actually be really experiencing it because they might, they might be able to taste more. So sometimes sensitivity could actually be that your sensory input is bigger, more intense, you know, so that can that can be part of it. And so sometimes people are trying to dampen down their life experience because everything's kind of a bit intense and other people are like loving intensity and wanting it, you know, intense, intense. Well, wow, you know, having a great intense <laughs> time, you know. <laughs> we are so different. Each each person is so different. It's, it's amazing. That's what makes the world interesting. Yeah, it is. But in mental health, it's kind of like, oh, well, this strategy is going to work. 
And Julie, my colleague who I do a lot of work with, we just laugh. We're just like, well, it works for them. But, you know, it's like if you're sort of like, oh, like if you're having a bad day, go have your favourite soup in your favourite spot in your favourite restaurant. And you're talking to someone who's a sensory seeker, they just think, that won't work. What are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> so how, how would you say it is used for people with BPD? Well, I guess it's understanding. Like people with BPD... Um, often have more sensory sensitivities. So if we kind of look at, there's a lot of variety with BPD. Often people with BPD have at least a couple of areas that they actually do find that the sensory input is intense or overwhelming. And then often there's a couple of areas where they actually are are seeking it as well. So for example, um, someone might be really sensitive to smell um, and sensitive to sounds and then seek a lot of movement. So they kind of like like moving all the time, for example. And then someone else with BPD might be different to that again. So we do, it is individualised, but they have found with some studies that actually there's usually a couple of areas of sensory sensitivity. You know, not always the seeking, sometimes missing input as well. So missing input is when your brain just doesn't register sensory input. So if you just sort of have like a sticky note up above the desk and some people are like oh I don't even see that sticky note after the first three days like the sort of input doesn't come in so that's missing sensory input and so when we look at things like taking medication some people like oh we'll put a sticky note there and people who are sort of sensitive to visual input will go oh yeah that sticky note's there I always see that but people who miss visual input will need a variety of things they'll need probably a visual input won't work for them. Maybe like a reminder on the phone might work or maybe they have to put their medication inside their teacup so that when they have their, their tea in the morning, they go, they look and like, oh, there's the tablets right there. You know, so they need more of a, a tactile kind of a one. Yeah, so I guess it's sort of, if you kind of look at, you know, what are people with BPD having difficulty with, we could look at what's going on from a sensory perspective, what's their unique sensory preferences and then, what can we look at that might help them? Yeah. That is so interesting that you brought up visual input because I think I miss that too. I remember in school, my classmates would discuss my teacher's outfits and all I could think of is how do you know which outfit she she wore, she's wearing today? It just, yeah. I, I don't see it. It's, you're right. It doesn't process. Yeah. Your eyes are working, but it's not getting up to your brain. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. I never I never understood that. That is so interesting. Yeah, um, and yet some people are like seeing every little detail and they're taking it in, but then maybe they're overwhelmed with it as well. But the same thing happens with internal body sensation. So some people, they don't notice they need to go to the toilet or they don't notice that they're thirsty till they're really thirsty. And other people like notice just every little thing going on with their body. You know, this has a lot of implications, you know, when someone's like, you know, oh, so how do you feel or... Like, can you tell when you're getting anxious and they can only tell when their heart rate's really got high or their palms are like dripping with sweat and then someone else can tell like you know the first tiny little bit of change talking about the change so what what happens because for me I sometimes when I feel that change I start panicking because I, I feel it very quickly yeah um, right. any yeah. small thing and I, even just brighter lights uh, I walk into a room with bright lights I start panicking. Like literally, yeah. I, I, that could put me into a panic attack. Yeah. Is there a Sens- way? Sensory I'm, I'm input thinking. does. Yeah, yeah. It can. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about it as well, because it can be a result of panic. And 
sometimes people are like, well, I don't have any irrational thoughts about the lights because it's mm. not actually thoughts that is leading to the problem. It's actually literally that the sensory input is feels scary, feels threatening. And so that sort of you don't feel safe potentially. I don't know what you do, but for some people they just don't feel safe with certain types of input. And it's not because they think it's dangerous. It's actually just the sensory input just goes blah, you know. <laughs> And what about, because I'm thinking even, there are a lot of medications, like antidepressants that make you thirsty. Yeah. Um, and I'm on a medication that makes me real thirsty. And this thirst, if I wake up and I'm thirsty, very extremely thirsty in the middle of the night, that triggers my panic attack. So yeah. how do you decrease that intensity? Or is there a way to stop the panic attack? Well, I think if you know that um, you're sensitive to lights, for example, then knowing that like, hey, Maybe in this room I'll have lamps on and if I go outside and I'm coming back home, I'll try and have lamps on or trying to sort of decrease the light or wearing sunglasses or things mm -hmm. like that. So so looking at how can you turn that input down or how can you in the middle of the night maybe make sure that you can get something into your mouth pretty quickly, um, obviously having a water bottle there or having oh, yeah. something. So <laughs> sort of that kind of sensory input is obviously pretty obvious. But in terms of calming i guess i guess in terms of the the light one we would probably say that if you can dim the lights you may well feel better and i think knowing that it's the sensory input rather than kind of you know some people are on this endless quest for some traumatic thing or some kind of irrational thing that's going on that's leading to it if you just kind of go okay this is probably a sensory anxiety i need to manage it this way i'm going to get an eye mask out and i'm going to sort of have some dark time for a little bit then maybe that would kind of work that way I mean we do have a range of strategies that we use for panic as well um, we use some of the sort of dbt strategies like the sort of cold water over the face the dive oh, reflex yes. one mm -hmm. um, we look at pickle juice quite a bit as well um, pickle juice vinegary things things like that as well so they can be good particularly if the panic is kind of getting up to spaciness and sort of disconnection and dissociation. Yeah. Pickle juice. So you drink it? Yeah. Or you can just eat a pickle or some people are trying like um, salt and vinegar chips or like some people like eat pickled onions regularly. It can be like pickled onions, sort of vinegar, um, wasabi, some of those sorts of things. So in DBT, they kind of refer to that as like an intense sensation. But um, my colleague, Julie, she did some research into pickle juice because she heard that it was being used for sporting occasions. So if someone is like if you're watching cricket and someone gets a muscle cramp, they, they bring out the pickle juice and someone drinks this pickle juice. And then within a couple of minutes, they actually the, the cramp stops. And so these researchers looked at, well, how does it work so quickly? Um, because if you think about it, if you were drinking pickle juice and it was an electrolyte change, what would happen is you'd have to like swallow it and have to go in your stomach and have to go into your body. You know, that doesn't take two minutes. And so what they found was there these, there's these um, channels at the back of your tongue called trip channels. And they basically get this reflex going, which changes your muscles and can relax your muscles. And so Julie and I went, well, if that works for muscle cramps, maybe we should 
see if people who we're working with want to try it. And we've had some really good results. So we'd love love someone to research this more. But we just kind of go, well, DBT says intense sensations and pickle juice is being used for cramps. And, you know, if someone's happy to have pickles, then just try it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all need different strategies. So as many as there is out there and many ideas, I've heard about, I've heard someone saying, pour salt onto your tongue. Hey there, warriors. Before we dive into our episode today, I wanted to take a moment to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor, HopeForBPD.com. If you've been a part of this journey, you know that I don't just bring you stories and expert advice. I also am on the lookout for resources that can make your journey with BPD more manageable and more hopeful. Hope for BPD is that resource, a beacon of hope. Whether you're personally affected by BPD or you're supporting a loved one through their journey, this platform is here to assist you in every step of the way. Hope for BPD provides confidential and compassionate treatment consultation, information and research about evidence-based treatments, ongoing solution-focused and non-judgmental support for individuals with BPD and family members, and so much more. BPD isn't something you have to face alone or in the dark. So visit their website at hopeforbpd.com to learn more about their services and find that glimmer of hope you've been looking for. Because remember, no matter how tough it gets, there's always hope. And now back to our show. Um, let's go back to the diving. You mentioned the diving. Dive um, reflex. Yeah. Dive reflex. I've recently heard about it. I've never heard about it until a couple of weeks ago. I don't exactly remember what it was. Something. Do you also pinch your nose like when you do that or is that? We, we don't. Like um, we, we've made it a, a bit more portable. Um, I mean, obviously, you can people can go and swim in cold lakes and things like that but what we do is we get like do you know ziploc bags you know where you Mm -hmm. just yeah so we get one of those and you pour water in from the fridge about a third full okay or you can take out a cold water bottle with you so you can just kind of have the ziploc bag in your pocket and then a cold water bottle and then you pour it in and then you just ziploc the top and then you lean back or lean forward ideally and then you put it just over this bridge of your nose and under here so not over your eyes just under here Mm -hmm. and if you like you can also hold your breath that can kind of help as well if you find it's getting too cold you can kind of like bring it off and then put it back on Um, and for some people they go oh actually that really is too cold like if they're very sensitive to cold maybe that's too cold so some people just kind of get like a cold sort of flannel or something like that and what it does is it's another reflex like the pickle juice is a reflex and the icy water is a reflex as well and it's a reflex that basically if we fell into some icy water, our brain and our organs would be preserved. So it kind of changes the blood flow. It drops the heart rate really fast. So for that perspective, we say it's not a good idea to do with someone who's like got really severe anorexia or a heart problem because, you know, it can change your heart rate really quickly. So maybe ask your doctor if you've got some of those things or is pregnant. But for your average person it's actually really worth trying. It can really help with panic attacks. So it does it slow your heart rate actually or just yeah, yeah. extract? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When you're doing it at the time, it might increase your heart rate slightly, but then afterwards you get like a response. Yep. Someone that Julie worked with had dropped by 50 from like 130 to like 80. Yeah. So they actually measured the heart rate. Yeah. And that, that's a good thing to do. Like, you know, if you've got like a watch on, you know, mm-hmm. that measures heart rate or whatever, just look, 
Just see whether it works for you, you know? I've been thinking about it because my panic attacks always come with, I think the highest I've seen, so I don't measure it, but I have had to call 911 to help me with my panic attacks before. I'm very open about it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I was over 160. I've never been 180. I've never even, I don't, I'm not sure if I, I can't say I never hit it, but I, the few times that I did, they did check it. And I sometimes think maybe I should get the, the tools yeah. to be able to check. But then I'm afraid that if I see my heart rate at like 160, or like you mentioned, someone being at 180, it's going to scare me even more. <laughs> I wouldn't do it during the middle of a panic attack. I just mean like to sort of like try it, like, you know, does it do anything? But I mean, sometimes people try it when they're calm and they go, oh, it doesn't do anything. I know I tried it. Like I had this kind of near miss with a, you know, near car accident kind of miss when I was nearly at home. And uh, so I came in and my heart rate was a bit up and then I tried the ice water and I was like, oh, I calmed down a lot faster than I normally did. Yeah. But I think when it comes to panic attacks, I think, Something that a lot of people don't know about is that most of the symptoms of panic attack are from changes to carbon dioxide. Like, do you know that? Never heard of it. Yeah. So the sort of um, what happens when you uh, start to breathe either too fast or too deeply is mm -hmm. you can either whoosh out your carbon dioxide and get low or else get high in carbon dioxide. Mostly it's getting low. And so the symptoms of kind of like the heart and all of the symptoms of a panic attack are pretty much from changes to carbon dioxide. Basically what people feel though when the carbon dioxide is low, they feel like they need oxygen because carbon dioxide is the thing in your body that tells you how much oxygen you need. So your body's screaming at you like, I need oxygen, I need oxygen. But the more oxygen you take in, the less kind of balance you have with the carbon dioxide. It's actually really hard during a panic attack to have someone breathe in a way that works for them but I do encourage people to just go I've got enough air I've got enough oxygen this is a carbon dioxide problem and so the icy water kind of can can help with with that because it can decrease the heart rate which sometimes can help with changing the oxygen carbon dioxide balance or distraction can work trying to read things out sometimes can work it's a breathing strategy that I do sometimes or jumping up and down on the spot because if you're doing like star jumps or jumping up and down on the spot, it's really hard to keep hyperventilating. You're right. Or putting something heavy on your lap. So even like a pile of books, cat, some heavy pressure as well, that can help too. Have you heard of the brown paperback theory? Like Yeah, um, yeah. Method, yeah. not theory. Is yeah. that because of the carbon dioxide too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that builds the carbon dioxide back up. So you can do a brown paper bag for about 30 seconds. So you could probably try it. I mean, brown paper bag went out of fashion because they said, you know, it shouldn't be used in an emergency. Like if a paramedic or someone just saw someone like, what's going on for them? Like, you know, you wouldn't bring the brown paper bag out if it was with a stranger. But if you know yourself that you don't have heart problems and it's not an asthma attack, you know it's a panic attack, then try the brown paper bag and just see how you feel. Or if you don't have one, even just cup your hands over your mouth like that. Just try that because that can just get a bit of extra carbon dioxide. And obviously you have to breathe again after 30 seconds or so. Yeah, but of it can course. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people with panic attacks don't know that that's actually, it's a problem of carbon dioxide. But how, how does it start then? How does it begin? All of a well, sudden you're low happens, in carbon dioxide? No, well, usually what happens is either people, usually it's it's people start to breathe too quickly. 
So if you're breathing between 20 and 30 times a minute, so about every three seconds or even every two seconds, the breath just gets unequal. But then the other thing that happens is when people are anxious, their body goes, you know, you're obviously about to be, you know, running away from danger. Let's get the lungs nice and full. And so anxiety in particular really makes people crave a really full lungs. And so for a lot of people that we work with, when they try and do a strategy, like they're like, oh, well, we'll do this particular strategy, they end up taking a really full lung and then they'll breathe out and then they'll go back to the really full lung. And so we actually think breathing strategies are pretty hard to get right for with panic. So that's why we would we would go, look, try icy water, try the brown paper bag, try this, try jumping up and down, try the bag. We would probably try all those things before we actually recommended breathing because it's just so hard to get right. Have you tried various breathing strategies while you're panicking? Um, I have. It makes me panic even more for some yeah. reason. Yeah. I, I'm not... <laughs> Because it's well, you know it's yeah. supposed to calm you, but for some reason I yeah it just freaks well, me out even more. It, it makes well, your, it worse. your body is screaming at you that you need more oxygen, but actually you don't need more oxygen. And so any breathing strategy is trying to work against what your body is telling you to do. So it is True. it's it's very hard. So some people can manage it often if they've kind of done breathing strategies other times and they've nailed that for the rest of the time. And then they try during panic. That's a bit better. Yeah, it's not our preferred. That's why we're against, we're, we're about sensory input. So mm. we're like, try the sensory input first. <laughs> yeah, when I, I've tried the, what works for me and it doesn't work instantly. It takes about half an hour to kick in is the ice. So I, I, okay. I just get um, ice packs. Yeah. Um, I If I can, sometimes I'm too weak to even go to the freezer, but yeah. I try to gather the energy to go to the freezer, get that ice pack, and it takes a while. It doesn't kick in right away in a few seconds. It could take a couple of minutes. It could take half an hour, but I've tried the dive reflex, but I'm panicking so much that I can't remember, wait, what? Am, where am I supposed to put it? Where am I? Am I supposed to hold my breath? Am I, it's just sometimes when I panic, it's difficult for me to think. Yeah. And that, I could panic where, to the yeah, point that yeah. I, you could ask me my name and I'm like, What's my name? Maybe you're panicking so much you're sort of starting to dissociate as well. So yeah. maybe the pickle juice. The problem with me is the dissociation increases my panic. Of course. Yeah. I mean, they're horrible <laughs> states to be experiencing. Like, who wouldn't be? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, dissociation in itself can sometimes be preceded by hyperventilation as well. But, yeah. Just, just try that even for like 20 seconds. Just try that now just see what happens the 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 breathing the brown yeah, paper back there but yeah just breathe normally but just with that there and those tools are so important they're so important every time i find something new that works for me i get so excited it's like okay i've got another one thing to help me yeah. when i'm because for years i didn't have any tools i just have those panic attacks and try to regulate it on my own um and the first tool i started using i think was the ice water ice cold water yeah. if i have enough energy and it doesn't happen frequently i i'll jump into the shower an ice cold shower yeah yeah so that does and even not even with pan only with panic attacks but when i'm just really anxious or i'm depressed if i could get into the shower and then just have a, a freezing ice cold shower yeah I get out of there and I feel different. I feel a little bit better. Like the depression, anxiety has been decreased, even if it's not significantly, a little yeah. bit. 
Yeah. So yeah. there's something to it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Another one that we um, often look at is um, from a, a smell, like, well, we, for another taste one is warheads or something sour, but another one is um, having a smell that reminds you of a safe place or mm. a safe person. So if you had, uh, for example, if the beach was your happy place and you could get a little bit of sand and kind of just smell that, something that you kind of just have that sort of automatic reaction where you smell it and you go, ah, oh, I'm taken back to that happy, safe place. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, I see. Where do people learn more about it? Um, so we've got and... some courses and, I mean, we've got um, some stuff on YouTube, not too much on YouTube, but we're trying to build that up. But mm -hmm. at Sensory Modulation Brisbane, we've got quite a lot of blogs. We've got free resources. So we've got like a intense sensation checklist you can download or we've got like a, a leisure interest checklist that's got all of these different sensory inputs so you can kind of think about, you know, well, I'm someone who needs more of this activity or this activity. So, yeah, so there's a lot of resources on our website. Um, and we're also trying to, we've been trying to educate health professionals over the last couple of years, but we've been really wanting mm -hmm. to move more on to um, working with clients themselves, with people themselves. A few years ago, um, we wanted to do to work more with people themselves, but we found that no one knew what we were talking about. <laughs> and so we thought, well, we're going to mm -hmm. have to start somewhere. And also sensory modulation is used within psychiatric hospitals um, as an alternative to seclusion and restraint. And Julie and I are very committed to trying to do what we can to help that to happen, you know, to stop that. So um, we do do education for, for health professionals with that. But yeah, we've got um, a course on grounding and we've got a course on uh, bathing solutions as well. Um, so we've got them coming out in the next couple of months as well. That is so cool. Yeah. I'm just wondering how do they, what do they do in a psych ward if instead of isolation is inclusion? Well, one of the things we're trying to teach people is to look at is there any sensory input you can turn down? So if someone's starting mm -hmm. to get agitated, like just try turning the radio off. Just see if, you know, the light, If is there a fluorescent light on? Just can things be dimmed? Is there an aromatherapy pumping something out? Like just try and like look at is there any bothersome sensory input or kind of layers of sensory input first to try and, and, and try and make the ward itself to be, like a sensational ward where there's like different sensory zones where someone wants quiet, they can go over here. Someone wants dark, they can go over there. You know, like obviously you can't get everything happening, but trying to do what you can to um, have people naturally to be able to move to the area that suits them. Because people are very intuitive. Like we're sort of talking about this, you know, most people are actually doing it. They just don't know why they're doing it, but they don't have to know why. They just have to be able to do it basically. So some of those things are good. And then also looking at, can you offer someone like a, a weighted cushion? Can you offer them even something to eat? Like if someone's really getting angry um, and you kind of are just like, hey, why don't we sit down and, you know, have some tea and biscuits here? You know, hmm. like sometimes that kind of thing can just, having that visual there and kind of like, hey, I've got these biscuits here, you know, we've got this cuppa, like let's sit down. It kind of, it's a visual cue that someone is nourishing and caring as well. And when someone is kind of really feeling things intensely in hospital, then, you know, some of those things can work. But again, I mean, it depends on someone could be really angry. They could be panicking. They could be having thoughts of self-harm, you know, like they could be dissociating. Like, 
you know, a whole range of things can be happening. But, you know, people on the wards are pretty good at sort of working that out. But, yeah, having sort of a range of, of tools there can help. So we're really trying to encourage psych hospitals to have just foam earplugs for people and not have the TV on to have people be able to have their own, like, headbands where they can listen to the sounds rather than someone getting really annoyed by whatever the TV show is that someone's watching. Some of those sorts of things are pretty simple measures. And we're also trying to stop people from shining lights in people's eyes every 15 minutes to wake them up. Oh, yeah. Well, that, they're not they trying to wake them up. They're trying to see if they're alive. <laughs> oh. But they I, do wake them up. And then it does. Because like, I've been... Sleep. I've been in the psych ward more than once. And it's like, why are you doing that to me? (laughs) Because they want you to be in bed at that time. So you can't, you must be in bed. Yeah. And you don't have much. You can't like read. I don't think you you might have books. You know what? I can't remember, but I don't think they they allow you to have a A flashlight. Yeah. yeah, But then, then then you come to my room and keep on shining that thing. So do you want me to sleep or do you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so we're we're trying to look at like what's advert what's what's problematic sensory input and mm-hmm. you know there's some solutions for that as well like they're they're not cheap solutions but I think it's not a good idea to be having people sleep deprived when they're on a psych unit <laughs> mm, probably not you're right <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much for giving me the time of day that's um, all right for you time of night i really appreciate it because these these things are important and if we can make our lives a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable then um yeah then we should do yeah. that so yeah i think why sort of um why why sort of keep going through life with things being hard when you can kind of create a bit of sensory ease and have things like that are nourishing you and doing the right things for you so yeah yeah because life itself is not easy so if you could make it a bit easier then you should yeah <laughs> Exactly. And that's where the showering comes into it too, because it's like, do you need to shower or, you know, can you have a bucket bath, you know, you know, or wipes, can you use wipes or chucks cloth with some water or, or do you even need to get undressed? Like, so some people need benefit from wearing um, like a sarong in the shower so that they don't feel naked. Oh, wow. I didn't heard of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's um I guess that's what our, our courses are, like lots of different options so people can kind of think about it because it's usually not on people's radars. Like people people can select these things very intuitively, but it's just sensory input isn't on people's radars. Yeah. Yeah. Why and not? I think people sort of feel like, you know, um they need to kind of do it similarly to someone else. It's like, okay, well, I should have a shower every day and then I should have oats and then I should you know, go to the gym and it's just like, well, the shower is traumatic and then, you know, oats reminds you of something bad or you don't like the mushy feeling in your mouth and then you don't like the noise and the smells in the gym, then you've had a pretty sucky day already. You know, you've used up all your energy and it's not even like nine o'clock. <laughs> it's like, okay, we'll have a bucket bath, have some cereal that's nice inside your mouth and then, you know, exercise in natural light and then day started off better. Yeah, go on a hike maybe. Yeah, yeah. Instead of the gym. Yeah, if you can. Exactly. I'm not saying that everyone can go on a hike every day, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, think about what's right for the person. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Hope- hopefully people can think about that more, like what suits them and choose their own adventure. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, Carolyn. Thank you so much for joining us on today's BPD Bravery Show. 
If you've enjoyed it, then like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure to tune into our show every Monday and Friday. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD.